I'm recording today with Brad D'Antonio. We've met uh, at the FinCon conference here in Washington, D.C., and we thought we'd do a, a co-host episode and just see where that takes us. We, we've only barely met, so we don't know a lot about each other, and uh, we know, we're going to toss around a few different subjects between the two of us, but neither of us knows exactly what the other's going to say, so we're, we're on a bit of a tightrope here, folks, and uh, there's no net, but we'll see how we get on. Uh, so first of all, I might uh, we might jump in. Let's introduce one another. So Brad, now your your podcast is called Man Overseas. So that that's Ting there. So whereabouts overseas, and why are you overseas? Well, I visited fifty four countries since I quote unquote retired in April of twenty fifteen. So my wife and I just returned from Vienna, and what, what our plan is is to live in a different location for thirty days at a time. So before that, we were in Prague. Before that, we were in Mexico, and we traveled to San Miguel de Allende and Oaxaca and Playa del Carmen. So we spent 30 days in each of those places. And the reason we do that is because Airbnb hosts are willing to negotiate when you can stay for 30 days. So we try to keep costs down so we can continue to live this lifestyle because we just have a tremendous passion for travel. Fantastic. And so how long have you been doing that for? Well, it's been four years when I quote unquote retired I didn't have the intention of it being a permanent retirement, but as the assets kept growing and the rental income kept coming in, I I realized this is something that we could do for a long time. I had talked to some folks about going back to work and the money that I was being offered just wasn't there. You know, it didn't, I valued my time so much and my skill set perhaps that uh, it just wasn't, it didn't seem like a good idea to go back to the grind. So I'm kind of doing my own thing now. I have a blog and a podcast and uh, I get to take on some really cool opportunities meeting folks like you at, at conferences like FinCon. So it's really cool. Fantastic. And so what, you know, the next few destinations, where are you heading to? I am going to Costa Rica on a book writing trip. So I am finally going to write a book and that's going to be the next couple of weeks after FinCon. And then on the 26th of September, we head to Thailand and then we'll be in different parts of Thailand for 30 days at a time. It's fantastic. And so you're not, I guess it would be tempting in Costa Rica to then say, all right, well, let's work our way through the South American countries. But that's, that's too easy by the sounds. It is. But you know what we do? We take advantage of different flight deals. So, for example, there's a site called escapehouston.com, and I don't have any affiliation with them. I just like them because they pull data sources and, and provide these deals. And they usually are flash sales where they'll, they'll last about 24 or 48 hours. And there was one that came up for Bangkok, and you had to travel between, I think it was September and December. And we said, hey, let's go to Bangkok. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, that's how we decide. It's, it, it's pretty much what is um, inexpensive at the time. It must help. Your travel like that must help in living, I guess, a, a minimalist type lifestyle. You're not going to be wanting to have uh, a whole lot of hard assets that you need to lug around all over the place. That's a good point. Yeah. And you can, you can manage real estate from pretty much anywhere nowadays. I mean, if there's something that goes wrong with a tenant, you can text a general contractor. You can text several of them, get the best bid. Um, you don't even have to show up to the house a lot of times. So with rent checks being deposited electronically, I mean, you don't even, there's not as much work to do to manage a property nowadays. And you can do that from anywhere. So I chose real estate for the pursuit of financial independence because when I graduated from college in 03, there was a mentor that I had who recommended that I explore or I pursue financial independence. And he said that it was the 
ability to live from the income of your own personal resources. And I had a real estate license at the time. And so that's what I did. I learned to acquire properties for myself and became a landlord. And that's what ultimately led to financial freedom and the life that we're living now. Congratulations. And I'm sure we'll delve into that a little bit more. I'm sure there's lots of listeners that would love to understand how you achieve that. And uh, lots of people that would share that aspiration. Yeah. What about you, man? So um, you're from Australia, right? That's Correct. a long way away. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, no, it was quite a, quite a journey. It was about uh, 19 hours of flying and a bit of transit there as well. So probably 24 hours door to door. Wow. But uh, this is a conference that I really wanted to get to. I'd heard some, some fantastic stories about it. And I guess there's a degree of uh, being with your people. I mean, I, I, love, I love the podcasting. And uh, this is a conference where there's plenty of podcasters talking about money. And that's, that's my... That's my area of interest and passion. So uh, it's great to get along. And, and I guess the destination, Washington, D.C., I mean, it's fantastic. All the, the Smithsonian museums and the monuments and the memorials, these sort of things. It's a great opportunity. So I uh, was able to get here a couple of days early, check those out. Went to a baseball game last night, which was, which was fantastic. First ever baseball game. And it was an amazing game. The home team got, got home. They got the win. Well, it was an almost amazing. impossible situation. <laughs> I didn't get to go. I wanted to, but... A baseball team in America, in a major league team, plays 162 games a year. You probably saw the best game in 162 last night, so well, this, you're really lucky. This is what the guys were telling me, that, yeah, essentially it's downhill from here, so I should never <laughs> attend another baseball game. I've seen the, seen the best. It was uh, it was absolutely extraordinary, so I'm very fortunate. Yeah, and just for listeners, last night's game was the one where the Nationals scored seven runs in the bottom of the ninth inning, and Suzuki hit a three-run home run with a full count to win the game in walk-off fashion. So, yeah, quite an experience for you, and, man. That's great. And particularly... Because the Nationals were, were so far behind, half the crowd had already left. Like They'd wow. given up. And, and fortunately, we didn't. We stuck around to see a, a fantastic outcome. So I guess that's sport, isn't it? And, that's, and it's a great uh, example. If you don't leave early, you bought your ticket, stick right it to the end. Yep. Very cool. So what kind of work do you do in Australia? So I'm a financial planner. I'm my own practice and uh, based out in Essendon in Melbourne. And, uh, but you know, we look after clients all around the, all around the country. Um, a, lot of, a lot of our clients we work with via you know, video conference, Zoom, that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, some people come into the office, but plenty that we work with remotely. I have a question about certified financial planning because I've always considered using a money manager. I still consider it. But one of the things that kept me from doing it was, one, I think I have the psychological and emotional makeup to not need someone to keep me from doing something really stupid. <laughs> but... I also invest in real estate. And so I was always concerned that if a money manager or a certified financial planner is getting compensated based on how much money he's managing, that he's probably going to discourage me from investing in real estate. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. I mean, and that's possibly that's a difference between the US and the Australian system. So uh, in the investment space in Australia, um, it's illegal to be paid via commission. So you have to be paid via fee. Now, that fee could nevertheless be determined as a percentage of people's assets, and, and for very many people, that is the case, and we certainly do that for some clients. Uh, and I guess the rationale there is there's an alignment of interest. So if I can get the client's balance to grow, I get paid more, they've got a greater balance, right? So there's an alignment of interest. So that's, that's the rationale of that type of fee structure. But you're quite right, it doesn't work for everybody. So for plenty of our clients, uh, if they required ongoing advice, and, and not everybody does, sometimes it's just an initial project, but if they needed ongoing advice and an ongoing relationship, then we can just as easily structure it as a fixed fee so that then 
you know, the, the fact that it's property wouldn't make any difference. Now, I, I guess the element there, though, is where can we add value? And I can see, you know, from your side, your real estate, your background, and, um, and I know you've been a real estate agent, that how much value could a, could a financial planner add, at least in that property space, to you? Probably none at all. Uh, but perhaps they could could be useful in terms of tax-effective strategies, particularly around retirement, that sort of thing. Obviously, you know, I'm not familiar with, with the US retirement systems, but I would imagine that there would be strategies there and tax angles there that perhaps they could add value. So I, I think your concern's legitimate, but it doesn't have to be the case that a financial planner gets paid as a percentage of assets. Is it uh, typically negotiable? It's typically up to the financial planning practice to decide how they want to set themselves up. So some will be entirely percentage-based. Mm-hmm. Increasingly, what we're doing more and more, though, is you know, people will have a – because our focus, I suppose, is about gaining choice, enabling people to gain choice. And that might be retiring early, but it might be a career change or, or uh, you know, some other objective, taking time off for the kids or that sort of thing. So increasingly, what we're seeing a demand for is people where um, – they need a, a solution to, all right, well, how can I afford to take a year off so that I can go back to school? And so our work might be doing financial modelling around, okay, well, if you didn't earn income for 12 months, you know, here's what that's going to do. That might mean that you need to work an extra year or two before you can afford to retire. Um, or here's some other alternatives. Here's some tweaks we could make, you know, different investment strategy, et cetera, to, to vary that outcome. And so often we will do that financial modelling work and then, that's, and then that's done. They've got their answer. There's no need for an ongoing relationship. I mean, it's great when we do have an ongoing relationship and, and it's personally rewarding to have an ongoing relationship, but that's not what everybody needs. So, so in those circumstances, you know, we have fixed, fixed fees, fixed set fees to do initial projects like that and the client just pays for that project and then you're done. How important is asset allocation? And if it is important, is it dependent on what age you are? as to how you would advise someone? I mean, I'm sure there are other factors, but is that an important component of your your recommended asset allocation? So to your first point, how important is asset allocation? Massively important. Probably the most important decision of the whole lot. You know, people get into the minutiae of this particular share over that share or this ETF over that ETF. But far, far, far more important is your asset allocation. So how important? Extraordinarily important. Probably the most important decision. Sorry, what was the second part there? So, I'm 39 years old. Ah, that's right, age-based. Do you, do you recommend a certain strategy? Let's say I had a $100,000 income and I'm targeting, I would like to retire a little bit early, but not extreme early retirement, like in my 30s or 40s. How do you decide what percentage to allocate towards stocks or bonds or even international exposure. I know that everybody has or tends to have a home country bias. Correct. And if you haven't been ex- exposed to the American market the last 10 years, that's unfortunate. Correct. So h- how do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, no, so that is that is a good point. So certainly age is relevant. And I guess really that's what that's talking about is time frame. So I suppose, you know, if the objective was as I say, getting yourself in a position where you can take a year off so that you can go back to school and retrain, you might be 30, but but it might be three years is the time frame that you want to be able to do that. So therefore, that's going to have an influence on your asset, the appropriate asset allocation to achieve that particular objective. You're not going to want to be too heavy equities, uh, or perhaps property as well, because you know year to year you can get quite 
you know, high degree of variation in terms of return and potentially negative returns. Um, so it, it's certainly investment time frame, but you do have to also factor in just people's comfort. You know, there because you could say, all right, well, you've got a 20, 30 year time frame, so we can afford to be fully growth assets here. But if if the person is uncomfortable and they're the sort of person that perhaps checks their balance every every week or every month or something or, or every day, <laughs> or, well, yeah, hopefully not. But yes, some people would. You know, then even though that may well be the appropriate strategy for 20 years, if the first time the markets drop, they sell everything, then it's a disastrous strategy. So, you know, you need to be thinking about time frame, if, and obviously age is relevant there, but you do need to sort of broaden out the discussion a little bit, I think. But there's no set percentage that you would recommend for somebody who's 40 years old. A lot of my listeners are around my age. Yep. So I'm just curious if, if knowing nothing else, and maybe that's not a fair question, but hey, I'm 40. What kind of, and I want to retire at 58 or 62. What sort of allocation do, would you put towards stocks and, or bonds? You're going to be strongly allocated towards growth assets, yeah. Okay. So stocks, property, assets like that are going to grow in value. More than 75%? I'd have thought so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and all the more so in the current climate where interest rates are very low. Yeah. Uh, you know, your return on that low risk defensive type asset class is, is pretty poor. So that's going to, it's going to hold back where your balance is going to grow to down the road. Yeah. And, and I mean, do you have a view on that? I know you, you know, you particularly properties, well, your expertise. How do you feel that should play out? I actually coach clients on how to obtain financial independence through real estate investing. But one of the early questions that I ask is, do you have an idea in mind for 20 years from now, what, what percentage of your net worth is going to be real estate versus what percentage is going to be equities? And it's a good question to get, get the gears turning because you're going to have to reallocate and rebalance over the, over the years. And if you get to where you're, you have you know, a million dollars in real estate equity and only $200,000 in your 401k, well, then that's, that's a problem. So I think that's something that people don't often think about, but it's something that I want to get my clients thinking about early because I don't want them to be 100% real estate. I think you miss out on a lot of opportunity. I wouldn't want somebody to be 100% stocks, even if they had you know, Netflix and Amazon the last 10 years and they were growing like crazy. I would say, whoa, whoa, hey, you might have gotten lucky a little bit on that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's diversify. I think that you need to take some risk, um, both in the real estate market, both in um, the equities market. But also another thing that I tell people, a lot of my clients are around 30 years old, and I'll tell them that one of the things you may not realize is your income is probably going to skyrocket the next 10 years versus what you've been making the last seven or eight years. You're going to be exposed to opportunities as you start to make money, as you make more money. So just to give you an example, like I have friends who are in commercial real estate and they will tell me when there is a deal and then I'm able to share that with my clients. And so now that they have money, it's it's sort of like the rich get richer. You, you tend to, um, if you're, if you are studying the real estate market, you'll, it's like goal setting, you know, the old reticular activator system where you start noticing things you didn't before. Well, when you're, when you're trying to get your finances in order, all of a sudden you'll get exposed to a real estate coach or a certified financial planner at a conference. And then they'll give you ideas that you didn't realize before. So I'm, I'm all about trying to gain knowledge and then allowing that knowledge to compound as you com combine it over time, because that knowledge is going to be 
so much more valuable than just the sum of the individual parts of knowledge, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. So I'm like, be prepared. So one of my clients is a doctor, makes, makes really good money, but doesn't know a lot about investing. So one of the things I told him is that if you took like 1%, 2% of your paycheck and you started looking for opportunities in the medical device industry or uh, pharmaceuticals, something that you're exposed to regularly that you, you know works. You're recognize, yeah, Right, as long sense. as there's no conflict of interest there. So to give you an example, when I was in software, everyone I talked to was using either Microsoft SQL Server as their database platform or Oracle. So why not with that knowledge or, or some of the, um, the software companies, sales teams, or even the whole organizations were using salesforce.com, why not take 1% of your paycheck and, and take a risk on some of that stuff while you have a rising income? So Makes sense. That's sort of how now, I think about that. I wanted to get on to, uh, so you said about property, and I know, you know that's particularly your strength. For me, look, I've got more comfort in, in the stocks and the equities side of things. But that's not to say I'm anti-property. And particularly where property, I think, works really well is the ability to gear, the ability to borrow. It's harder to do that against equities. But you know, property is easy to, to borrow against. And gearing is certainly a way to magnify returns. And you hope that those returns are positive, certainly if you give it long enough. Uh, and so gearing can really work to, to really kick along things. Now... Have you, in terms of your strategy and the fact that you were able to achieve early retirement, has gearing been an element in what you've done with property or how, how have you sort of thought about that? So I don't think gearing translates in in American English. What what do you mean by gearing? Borrowing. You mean leveraging? Yeah, okay, leveraging, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, it didn't play a big part. And the reason was because I had a rising income in both software and real estate. So I was working two jobs. Um, I had, when I graduated school, I was selling only real estate. And then after about three or four years in the workforce, I got into software sales and I retained my real estate license so that I could sell both. Wow. I was so busy that I didn't want to fool with all the headaches that the documentation process and the approvals and um, paying fees and interest. I just wanted to be able to do deals quickly and knew that I would never regret paying off real estate. So... I would save up enough cash to pay cash for properties that were about seventy to 90000 One of the things that I really benefited from was as my income started rising, the prices of real estate started dropping significantly. This is around 2008, 2009. Yeah, okay. So, so there was a great opportunity there. Yeah, properties that were selling for one thirty, one forty were all of a sudden selling for $65,000, $70,000. So I was able to snag some of those up while prices were depressed and then they began to skyrocket shortly thereafter and I, I I know that I could be very wealthy had I had I leveraged more but at the same time I was so focused on getting my earned income up that the passive income was was just something that was accumulating on the side yeah and so like I said I just knew that I wouldn't ever regret paying for real estate and I still don't regret it and I don't think that 15 years from now if I'm worth you know I'm just going to throw out a random number, you know, $5.87 million. If I was worth, I could have been worth $6.57 million. It's not going to keep you awake at night, is it? Exactly. So um, so that's really interesting. So you've pursued wealth and and independence through property, but you've done it without borrowing, uh, which is maybe the more traditional path. I guess, you know, for the Australian listeners... I mean, ideas of buying property for sixty or seventy thousand, or even one hundred and thirty thousand, are probably uh, a bit of a shock. But yeah. uh, there we go; different markets and there's different opportunities there. So, uh, yeah. and, it, and it, it would be hard to do now. It it was a a time when 
when properties were suddenly depressed because of the recession that started in December 07. But with the availability of real estate online and the, the networking possibilities, for example, there'll be a guy here that I interviewed on my podcast. His name is James Lowry. He lives in a market in Alabama that they can buy properties for like $45,000. And so he's, he's gobbling them up. He, he had achieved financial independence in three years by accumulating all these low priced properties. Well, people are getting wind, catching wind of that around the world, around the country, contacting him about buying property there. So those opportunities are available. They might not be in your local market, but with the advent of the internet and networking opportunities, you can find deals at, at very low prices. And as I said earlier, you can manage a property from pretty much anywhere in the world nowadays. Yeah. Hey, let's, let's take things to a slightly different tack, Brad. Uh, money and happiness. What's, what's your thoughts on that? <laughs> it's one of my favorite topics. It's funny you bring that Mine up. Too. I actually wrote two blog posts about happiness. And I write about happiness because I want more people to be happy. And for me... Happiness is interchangeable with peace. And to tie that into money, you can get a lot of psychological well-being when you're in a good place financially. And although I don't think that money buys happiness, it can certainly eliminate a lot of sadness. And one of the reasons that so many people are here now is because they've embraced a more frugal lifestyle in their pursuit of financial independence. And one of the things that you realize traveling around the world and especially to more developing countries or third world countries is that much of the stress and anxiety that people feel in America is self-inflicted as a result of trying to keep up with each other, keeping up with the Joneses, we say in America. No different in Australia. Yeah. And we yeah. use the same term as well. Yeah. And we know that that doesn't buy happiness. In fact, I've written that the best example of how money doesn't buy happiness would be Hollywood. Who's more miserable than a Hollywood celebrity, right? A lot of times they get hooked on drugs and, and buy more to try to make themselves more happy. And we know it doesn't work. So I, I think they serve as an example of how money doesn't buy happiness. Um, and I also, I follow the Stoics a lot. And I remember Seneca said that he said, um, or he wrote, so it is inevitable that life will be not just very short, but very miserable for those who acquire by great toil what they must keep by greater toil. So, of course, that means that you're you're working 50, 60, 70 hours a week to buy the 3,000, 4,000 square foot house. And it's just, although our standard of living is the envy of all the world, on happiness measures and, and studies, we're not getting any happier. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, I find it interesting that you asked that question. Uh, what is what is happiness to you? How do you think about being happy in yeah. today's look? Day certainly, age? a lot a lot of commonalities there. I think, um, yeah, money can certainly alleviate a lot of stress. You know, I, I like the you know, certainly it's not an original of mine, but you know, money can't buy happiness, but poverty certainly doesn't. You know, and and I think that's fair. The other, I guess, concept that I really like is that. Uh, happiness derives from making progress towards worthwhile goals. I think that that really resonates with me. So, and then that goal could be anything. That goal could be learning to speak Japanese. I mean, it doesn't have to have anything to do with finances. But certainly, in my experience, I get a lot of happiness out of out of making progress on something. So, a, a, as an example, for instance, um, 
last summer in, in Australia, I, uh, I've been sort of dabbling in, in having out triathlons for a few summers and very poorly and, you know, I usually come last or somewhere near last. But in any event, of the three uh, sections of that, so there's a run, a ride and a, and a swim, far and away my weakest was the swim. So last summer I decided, right, I'm going to knuckle down and I'm just going to focus on the swim. I'm going to do into three ocean swimming events, right? So just totally let's try and get this swimming right. And the satisfaction, one of the events in particular is a really iconic event in Victoria. It's called the Lawn Pier to Pub. And it's, I think it might be the, the biggest uh, op, um, open water swimming, ocean swimming event in the world from a participation point of view. Uh, and, and it's just something, it's iconic. I've known lots of friends that have done it, and it was always something that I felt was unattainable. You know, I could never swim that far in the ocean. I could never swim that far in a pool, but certainly not in the ocean. Uh, and last summer I achieved that, you know, and, and just felt fantastic. It was, uh, it, you know, I was just on an absolute high for days after that. And so I, I think, you know, from a, a happiness point of view, and, and, and so obviously there are financial things that you can do along those lines as well, but that sense of, right, let's set a goal. Perhaps it's, it's early retirement is as a case for you or, you know, whatever the particular goal is, but let's set a goal and let's try and make progress towards that goal. That, that, that's where happiness is. And to the extent that, you know, you can use money to enable you to achieve those goals, perhaps in terms of affording your time, for instance, uh, or the goal is financial in its own nature, but, but that making progress. And I think maybe, you know, you touched on the Hollywood star or someone like that, or perhaps sometimes people that in, uh, inherit wealth, for instance, they don't need to make that progress. They don't need to, to, to do the hard work uh, and therefore they're miserable. So it's not actually how much is in the bank. It's, it's, it's the progress that's the important bit. And uh, yeah, that, that's, that, that's a, I think for me a key thing around happiness and money and how to sort of make these all come together. Those are great points. One of my favorite, probably my favorite book is a book written by Viktor Frankl. He was an Auschwitz survivor and the book is called Man's Search for Meaning. And one of the quotes from that book that I've pretty much internalized, and pardon me, I'm probably going to paraphrase, I don't know it word for word, but he said, what man needs is not a tensionless state, but a worthwhile goal, a freely chosen task. And what financial independence retire early enables you to do is freely choose what it is that you want to work on. Mm. And like you said, as long as you are building towards something, that is fulfilling. And that's part of why they say to focus on the journey and not the destination because the journey breeds happiness and if you're chasing materialism it's like chasing the wind because you're always going to need the next thing but if you chase relationships and you chase fulfillment and creativity and things that benefit other people that breeds happiness more than anything else so try to if you can avoid the shiny things that depreciate in value and focus on things that truly bring you not necessarily excitement, but fulfillment. Yep. And it's easier said than done, but that's something that, that I'm always working on. And uh, it's things like this. You know, I, I remember Jim Rohn said that the true rewards in life are on the top shelf. And the way that you get there is by standing on the books you read. Well, on the top shelf is touring castles in Europe. And it's attending FinCon in DC and it's making new friends in Australia and sitting down for conversations like this. So I'm a huge proponent of happiness is a skill set and it can be worked on, but you have to, you're only going to get out of it the amount of happiness. You're only going to get out of it what you put into it. So 
just like getting into the gym and exercising builds muscle to build your happiness skill set you've got to practice these things you've got to practice gratitude and you've got to write thank you notes and you've got to learn to say no so setting up boundaries in your in your life you know whether that's family or just some people will walk into a room and suck the joy out of it but over time as you get older you learn how to deal with those situations to create optimal happiness and, and it's, it's a journey. I mean, I'm still working on it, too, and you'll always be working on it. Um, another example, when, when I got married, I told each of my buddies how much I loved and respected them. And when I give a talk nowadays, I'll share that with, usually it's a group of young men, and I'll tell them that I did that. And I'll say, you know, I'm not seeking validation. I am expressing myself authentically and confidently. And when I go to the grave, none of my buddies will will not be aware of how much I love those guys. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of thing that builds happiness. That's building relationships. So go first, tell people you love them, tell them you appreciate them, write thank you notes because that's becoming obsolete because of email. So there's all these little things, but it's work. You gotta do it. You gotta, you gotta make yourself a little uncomfortable to get the benefits. So yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up too. Fantastic thoughts, fantastic thoughts. Hey, let's uh, let's swing back a little bit to uh, you know the the world of money. Uh, a, a big theme at the moment is the trend towards zero interest rates around the globe. Japan's been there a while, uh, but generally everywhere else is rapidly catching up. Now, it's interesting you know, your experience. You've built your property portfolio without debt, so therefore maybe you say whatever. But I don't know. Does that does that low interest rate scenario alter your thinking at all? For instance, are you tempted to say, well, gee, it's so cheap to borrow. Perhaps I should double down here. I should buy more property. Or how does it impact your thinking, if at all? It's a great question because it has impacted my thinking primarily because I don't have the big income like I used to have. And my wife and I married about a year and a half ago, and she wants to get into real estate investing. And... I've wanted to continue acquiring property, but we can't do it at the rate at which I was doing before because the income just isn't there. So we we do plan to buy our first property with a 20% down loan. And you can do a 15 year now for like 3.55 or something I saw the other day. So it's ridiculously low. Low interest rates. Are you seeing that impacting property prices? And therefore, rental yields? Has that flowed through yet? Well, real estate is like the weather. It's very local. So if you're talking about my specific market in Houston, one thing I did notice is that when there were tweets sent out about China and tariffs and things, the properties that hit the market in those days would be in the in the areas that we're targeting for investment. If the average price of properties that came available was about 150 over the span of like three or four days, if a property was newly on the market, I noticed it for like 134.9 or yeah, it's 132. Quite a I know, I, I couldn't believe it. So I really think it depends on what is happening in the moment. And just keep in mind that it's really like the weather. It could be raining in North Houston, um, but it could be sunny in Southwest Houston. We have a big concrete city. Okay. Every market's a little different, but where what I'm seeing in the Houston market is that things are a little bit volatile. We've always had steady, gradual appreciation, except for 07, 08, 09. So I haven't seen a lot of difference, but like I said, it's been volatile volatile on certain days if you put your house on the market that day. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I guess part of my train of thought there was, 
well, particularly I know some of the European experience. So they've had very low interest rates for quite a long, as most of the world has, but Europe probably a little lower than most. Uh, and I understand that particularly German, Germany, Sweden have had quite strong property price appreciation, uh, presumably fueled by those low interest rates and people's capacity to borrow more uh, and therefore spend more in terms of buying property. And it's interesting because normally you would think low interest rates or the, the economic textbooks would say that that should fuel inflation. And yet that hasn't been the global experience. It hasn't been the experience in Japan and they've had zero interest rates for 20-odd years. Uh, inflation hasn't popped up, which is surprising. But often property prices have gone up quite a bit. To some extent, equities have gone up too. Uh, but you know, maybe the, the, uh, the inflation is, is flowing through into property instead of into consumer prices. But the challenge there is... The property prices go up, but the rents don't necessarily, or certainly don't go up to the same extent. So therefore, your yield as an investor is declining. And perhaps that still works anyway, because you're looking at the alternatives and saying, well, hey, I could put my money in the bank and earn you know, a quarter of a percent. So therefore, even if I get 2% rental yield, that's still okay in today's market. But that then means that you need quite a bit more property to be able to perhaps achieve you know, retirement goals or, or other goals that, that, uh, that you're trying to hit. Um, and so I guess that's why I was just yeah just wondering if you'd seen any uh, I guess downward trend in terms of rental yields as a consequence of, of properties going up, but the rents not going up at the same pace. But it doesn't sound like so far in your market that's been the case. I think you said it about ten years ago when I was buying properties for seventy to ninety thousand. Those properties were renting for about twelve hundred dollars, and I've seen a hundred percent appreciation in the properties, so they're worth one fifty, one sixty now. But they don't rent for more than fourteen hundred, fourteen fifty a month. And they were renting for twelve hundred dollars back then. Yeah. So we're talking about what seventeen percent increase over ten years in rental amounts. One thing I think that you can't get caught up in though is that when I was buying all those properties that led to my financial independence, down the street, guys were guys had gotten their property, guys and gals had bought their property for $65,000, $70,000. And property prices started to appreciate to where I had to then buy for eighty dollars to eighty-five. dollars And so I'm thinking, well, the guy down the street got such such a better deal. His yield is so much higher. His, has, his yield has nothing to do with me. Yep, true. So I think we get into this relative mindset that really doesn't matter. Personal finance is called personal for a reason. So... If you come in and buy a property in those neighborhoods that I'm talking about, if you buy a property there today, you're going to pay about 150 and you're only going to be able to rent for, let's say, 15, probably 14, 1500 at the most. That's a, a 10% on the gross that you've paid. Historically, that's a pretty rough standard of, of what you want to target. And then, sorry, but I'll, yeah. I'll, again, and I'm just thinking about Australian listeners because that seems very high, but then you guys have property taxes and other bits and pieces to come off that. I mean, we, we do too, but I think you guys have more. Can you just touch on that a little bit? That's a good point, and it varies by state. But where I live, it's about 3% right. but we don't of the of the home's value. So, if so you that's bought just a straight tax? Right. If you bought a $150,000 house, your property tax would be roughly $4,500. Just every year. And that's, right. but that's And that's not covering things like you know garbage removal or, or any services at all that's just a tax that is tax it primarily goes to schools yep yeah and that's tough <laughs> but it varies by state so in louisiana the state neighboring us they have a state income tax right. we don't have a state income tax in texas in louisiana they don't pay property taxes like we do it's very low we pay probably six times the amount of property tax that they do something like that. It's ridiculous. I don't know the exact number, 
but they get you in varying ways and it just yeah. depends on the laws of the state but Makes that's sense. a good point yeah three percent is a lot to pay yeah okay and then you've got all the normal running costs of a property and maintenance and those sort of things i don't know how much you've had a chance to review my blog but i post a lot of links like amazon links for books because i'm a big proponent of reading i love to read and i'm into all types of books fiction and non what do you, are you a reader? You strike me as someone who reads a lot. I am actually, yeah, yeah. I, I always have a typically. I'll have a fiction and a non-fiction going at the do same you? time. Yeah, yeah. I just like to you know vary that up. Okay, so I mentioned *Man's Search for Meaning* was my favorite book, and I could tell you a favorite book in every genre. Genre, but do you have favorites? Oh, it's it's often the case that the favorite is what I'm reading at the time. You know, um, so in terms of a favorite, I'm. I'm struggling, but at the moment I'm enjoying in the, on the nonfiction side um, a book called uh, by Standout, uh, beg your pardon, called Standout by Dory Clark, uh, and in fact she produces a great email. She's a, a great writer and thinker, uh, so she's around personal branding and influencing and those type of things, uh, and she's got some really good thoughts. So yeah, I'd certainly um, you know recommend people you know have a look at Dory Clark, and uh, I've already got. She's written three or four books, but I'm reading well, Standout's the first one I've read, but I've already I've bought her second one already. It's sitting on my bedside table waiting. So as soon as I knock off the first, I'm straight into it, you know, which which I don't think I've ever done before. But uh, uh, it's nice clarity uh, and not, you know, some of the, I guess the books that I get frustrated with in the, the nonfiction, you know, self-helpy type space are where I feel really they had one good idea that they probably could have got down in a perhaps a 2,000-word essay. And then they've just stretched it over a book because that was the more, that was the way you do it. Uh, and I, you know, so I sort of lose a bit of respect for people that, that that do that. And certainly, you know, this standout that I'm reading at the moment, that's not the case. You know, it's it's quality. It's no longer than it needs to be. It's it's just just right. Is know? she Australian? So, no, she's American. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah. So Dory Clark, check her out. She's very good. How about you? What have you been reading lately? Well, just to touch on what you said, a lot of times books can be blog posts and blog posts can be tweets. Right? Yeah, exactly. You, you have, have to, to justify the, the killing of the tree and <laughs> the cost of printing. And, um, I am reading, I just finished a book called The Geography of Genius and I loved it. It was about what type of environments bring about genius and it focused on specific parts of the world like Greece and Vienna, actually. So I'm in the process of writing a blog post about Vienna. And I'm going to talk a little bit about Freud and Hitler and Trotsky and Mozart and Beethoven because they were fascinating characters and geniuses. And I, I love to study genius and what made them tick and how the the times that they lived in, how much they were appreciated at that time, because in order to make a genius, you have to have a, an appreciating audience, right? So there may be geniuses in parts of the world that we'll never know about because there aren't enough people around them to appreciate what it is that they create. So I just finished that book. I'm usually reading about four or five at the same time. Wow. Yeah. So I'm reading essay um, Schopenhauer's essays. Schopenhauer was a 19th century German philosopher. I, I'm a big fan of him and Nietzsche, so I like philosophy. Um, I just finished Vagabonding, which is about traveling the world. It's written by Rolf Potts. He's all about um, living richly. So, you know, I don't know if you know, but the keynote speaker here is, he wrote a book, is Ramit Sethi, 
Uh, yeah, so I guess we'll see him tomorrow. But he wrote a book called I Will Teach You to Be Rich. And he's all about living a rich life. And through vagabonding, which the definition is something like um, traveling about the world and doing so to maximize happiness rather than living a luxurious life. So he thinks that people are slaves to materialism and he tries to talk people out of doing that so i found the book to be great and encouraging i pack a suitcase with me everywhere i go and i'm willing to pay the excess baggage fees so that i have a bunch of books with me so i travel with a suitcase like a carry-on size suitcase with about 25 books in it hang on hang on back everywhere up. i go you've not you've not heard of a kindle what's going on <laughs> i have a nook which is similar to a kindle but it's not the same yeah, I, I, I must admit, I mean, my, my wife has a Kindle and she loves it and she's a greater reader than I am, but uh, yeah, I must admit I haven't gone the Kindle myself, but I would have thought for someone traveling like yourself, it would be a perfect solution, but it's just not the same. It doesn't cut it for you. It's not the same. I bring the Kindle too, but yeah, it would be like substituting coffee for tea or something like that. And I just, yeah, yeah I'll do it sometimes, but not then, every day. How about we finish off with uh, who's going to win the, who's gonna win the Super Bowl this year? The season kicks off this weekend. Uh, what's your forecast? Oh, that's easy. Have you ever heard Houdat? Have you ever no. heard? <laughs> okay. So I'm from the Houdat Nation, which is New Orleans, the New Orleans Saints. They have okay. a saying that says, Houdat say they're going to beat them Saints. And it's just a reflection of how they talk down there. We tend to drop our R's and say our TH sound as a D, as a D sound. So Drew Brees is, seems to be getting younger. He's like Benjamin Buttons. So I like their chances. I think they've they got screwed by the refs last year, and I'm not one to complain, but it was pretty blatant. <laughs> right. What about you, man? Are you a football fan? Well, look, I, lo- I love the NFL. I mean, we uh, I get two or three games a week, and I don't have much choice over what games I get on the television, and I don't get a chance to watch two or three games anyway. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, it's a spectacular sport, and uh, I love it. I, uh, I guess I support the Rams, uh, and that's because I've only made it to one NFL game when I was in L.A. one time, and the particular game I was at was... Jared Goff's debut game as starting quarterback. So, and it, and it was a terrible game. The scoreline was like 6-3 and he didn't do anything, right? But I kind of feel invested, you know? I was there for his first game with the Rams and so to see him come through and obviously to make a Super Bowl last year was fantastic. Or this year, beg your pardon, last season. Uh, and so so the Rams is, is, is who I like to support. I mean, I think like a lot of people, it's almost the case of anyone but the Patriots, you know, and particularly this last Super Bowl. I mean, they just killed it, man. Uh, it was tragedy. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but also, I mean, the Chiefs. Mahomes is fantastic. And there was certainly that game last season with uh, uh, the Rams and the Chiefs. Running. It was 56-53 or something like that. Was, I mean, it's the best game I've ever seen. It was fantastic. So, uh, so. We'd love to see the, the, the Rams sort of go one better this season, but if it was the Chiefs' turn, I'd be equally happy with that. So you like offense? Very much. Yeah. I like the Rams because they have such a young coach and a young quarterback, and I tend to root for underdogs. I mean, he was the top pick in the draft, so he's not exactly an underdog, but uh, I like young guys doing big things. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, it's, it's a spectacle. It's entertainment, you know, and uh, as I say, I think that's where you know, the, the last Super Bowl, the Patriots did well, they got the win, but, gee, it wasn't much entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Brad. Well, look, fantastic to talk to you, and uh, I really enjoy the conversation. Thanks for uh, you know for sharing some of your time. Likewise, buddy. I don't know if I mentioned this, but I was in Vienna for thirty days, which happens to be one of the top places to visit in the world or to live in the world. And just in twenty eighteen, they were one and two with Melbourne, Australia. Yeah. <laughs> so I would love to visit your town sometime. And if I do, maybe we can do a part two. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, definitely get in touch and we'll have to show you around. No, we're, uh, yeah, it is 
you know, I'm very happy to live where we do, but it's also nice to get out and about and experience other places too. Very cool. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Brad. Bye-bye.